Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today we interview Chris Ryan, who has written the book Sex at Dawn, a really interesting look into the history of human sexuality. That's right, Seth. Today we're speaking with Chris Ryan, author of the book Sex at Dawn, about not only human sexuality, but also the way that humans used to live in the past. And so what Chris Ryan and his partner did in the book Sex at Dawn is they explored some of the reasons why traditional marriages, the way that we think of them as traditional marriages, have been facing so many problems in recent times. Now, in the U.S., 50% of marriages end in divorce, and in Canada, the numbers aren't really too much different. So what they did is they wanted to go back through history and look at the way our early ancestors lived, to see the ways that other apes lived, and question as the evolutionary process carried out, how did early human sexuality look and how is it different from what our culture views it today? And they came up with some very interesting findings. So if you happen to watch any of the videos that we filmed during the Montreal Degrowth Conference, perhaps you saw the video interview with Janice Harvey and she was talking about how institutions create culture. And if you want to start changing the culture, you really have to look at the ways that our institutions interact. And so Chris today is going to be speaking about how the institution of marriage is failing as the culture itself dies, as we spoke about with Stephen Jenkinson in episode number 51. And so the other thing that you'll want to know is we are going to talk in a mature way about human sexuality and mature topics in a very professional way. So just wanted to give you a heads up in case you're driving in the car and your kids are there or something like that. I will also warn you that this was one of the first conversations we were able to record in person instead of by Skype. And so Chris's quality is really fantastic, but because I had to use a different computer setup than normal, the Skype noises popped up every so often in the background. So I think there's maybe a dozen or so little Skype beeps in the hour and 10 minute conversation. So just as a heads up, don't let it bother you too much. That's right. It's just all part of the learning process here at The Extra Environmentalist. So get excited for this interview with Chris Ryan and also get excited to hear where The Extra Environmentalist will be traveling through December and January. We might be coming to a city near you.
when you guys were putting this book together, it looked like a lot of the motivation was looking at why our institution of marriage was so faulty. And so in the U.S., half of marriages end in divorce in Canada. It's basically the same way. And so why is it that we find that we have so many divorces in society? Uh, yesterday, I read a quotation from Gregory Bateson, I think it was. Let me see if I can remember it. He said, the, the major problems of the world are due to the conflict between the way nature works and the way people think. Something like that. I, I'm, I may be misquoting it a little bit, but that's the gist of it. So I think that encapsulates or, or, or summarizes the problem with marriage and with a lot of other things, a lot of other institutions in the modern world, that there's a, an essential conflict between our evolved predispositions, our evolved appetites, our evolved tendencies, and what society is telling us we should do or how we should feel. So when you've got those conflicts, you have problems, you have trauma, whether it be psychological trauma or physiological. When you feed your body a diet that it's not designed for, you end up with obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all sorts of problems. So when people say, and I get this all the time, as you can imagine, people say, but we're not animals. Yes, we are. You eat, you sleep, you, you know, you do everything animals do. You are an animal. Deal with it. You may be an animal with some levels of higher consciousness, but even those play tricks on us, right? We think we understand more than we do. We often form arguments behind the conclusion that we arrive at emotionally. So there are all sorts of very subtle ways in which we're not quite as sophisticated and spiritual as we think we are. And, and we have to start with that understanding of what kind of animal we are and shape our institutions around that, as opposed to coming up with these institutions for religious, philosophical, economic reasons, or whatever they may be, and then trying to force them on the animal. If, if you're designing a zoo, you know, you're going to build a chimp enclosure, what do you do? You go and you look at how chimps live in the wild, right? So you try to replicate their natural state as much as you possibly can in this artificial world that you're building. Because they'll live longer, they'll be happier, they'll be less stressed, they're more likely to breed and behave, you know, more uh, sort of peaceful, acceptable ways. Same thing with human beings. So there's obviously a reason that humans must think this way, I think that they're above animal tendencies. Could you kind of recap the standard narrative of human sexuality for us and maybe talk about what science has used to reinforce this idea in humans now? Sure. The standard narrative, uh, at least as we define it in the book, it sort of pivots on the notion that paternity certainty has always been a central concern for men. So men, since time immemorial, have traded resources. In prehistory, they're assumed to have been meat and protection and status and shelter and things like that. In exchange for the fidelity, the sexual fidelity of a given female, and so the whole point of the exchange is that the man knows that he's investing only in his own offspring and not in the genetic legacy of another man, right, which would be uh, a disaster from a purely genetic point of view. So that's the standard narrative, and it seems to make perfect sense. We look around the modern world and certainly the Victorian world in which this narrative came to be in many senses through Darwin. And we see women who don't appear to be particularly interested in sex. They sort of tolerate it. They sit back and they, they look for a good provider for their children. So they're judging men in terms of their wealth and you know, their status and these things, these resources that women are supposedly evolved to be attracted to and concerned with. 
So that's the standard narrative. And what we argue in the book is that rather than being a description of prehistoric conditions, what that really is, is a projection of 19th century conditions onto the tapestry of prehistory. But when you actually look at the data we have available from prehistory, much of which is admittedly circumstantial, which is something we can get to in a few minutes, I suppose. But when you look at these data, primary sources of data we have are primatology, where we're looking at primates similar to humans. How do they live? What's their sexual life like? And uh, anthropology. So we're looking at particularly hunter-gatherer groups that have been studied or accounts that have come from first contact, explorers, missionaries, things like that. So these are people who presumably live in ways similar to our prehistoric ancestors before the advent of agriculture. We look at contemporary psychosexual studies, research that's being done on what sorts of things turn people on, what sorts of porn they're into, what sorts of sexual problems couples report in their marriages, typically, stuff like that. And then the last area that we look at is anatomy, particularly comparative primate anatomy. So we're looking at things like the size of the genitalia, whether the testicles are interior or exterior, whether the women, the females have orgasms, what happens in the the reproductive tract of the female when she has an orgasm and so on. So all these different, these four different sources of information, they all sort of converge on one vision of prehistoric human sexual life and also social organization. And it differs greatly from what we call the standard narrative in that women are just as interested in sex as men are, albeit in different ways maybe, but they're just as sexual a creature as men are. And the reason that they've been trading sex for resources for so long is that since the advent of agriculture about 10,000 years ago, men have essentially cut them off from direct access to those resources. In a hunter-gatherer group, women bring in more of the calories than the men do. So they don't really need the men any more than the men need them, right? So there's a a very different sort of uh, power relation in a prehistoric or a hunter-gatherer society than there is in the Western world and certainly than there was in Darwin's day. So then maybe we could go into a little bit about how women have been treated then. Has it exploited them? What has marriage brought to our society? Has it made women a commodity? Has it made them just another object to be uh, used by men? What has it done? Well, essentially what it's done is it's made women the property of men. And that's what marriage is. In the last couple of decades, there have been some slight alterations around the corners of that. But even today, still, most marriage ceremonies include the line that the woman shall obey the husband. It doesn't say anything about the husband obeying the wife. Uh, And certainly, if you look at marriage as as a historical institution, it's all about ownership. The father walks the bride down the aisle and passes her to her new owner. It's like a livestock auction. If you look in the famous line from the Old Testament, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, which many people take to be a commentary on respecting your neighbor's marriage. It's not. If you read it in context, it continues, nor his house, nor his ox, nor his sheep, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, right? So the wife is just one item in a list of thy neighbor's property 
that thou shalt not covet. It's not about respecting his marriage. It's about respecting his property rights. And that's why paternity certainty is such an issue, because you want to know that you're passing on your property to your own kids, right? To your own sons, particularly in most societies. So that's why it's so important that a woman be a virgin when she marry in these societies, because that assures you that any child she has is yours. That's why chastity is so important. That's why even if a woman's raped, I mean, still in societies and in lots of societies in North Africa and the Middle East, if a woman's raped, she is condemned. She's stoned to death because she no longer has any value because now another man has possibly impregnated her, right? So there's all this very primitive energy around owning and controlling a woman and having absolute control over her sexual behavior as a way of assuring paternity. You would think that would all sort of dissipate with DNA testing and so on. But as we know, these ideas uh, lag far behind technological progress. Right. And I was wondering if there's so many issues around women being treated as property in, in marriage and making this trade-off from perhaps having more freedom before agriculture. Why is it that the idea of marriage is so romanticized now and so many women want to be married? And why is it that that narrative of marriage is just so popularized in our society? I think a lot of it has to do with the lingering effects of unfair economic situations in which women are disadvantaged economically. In the United States, I think it's still around for the same job, same education, you know, same years in the position and so on. Uh, a woman makes 70, I think it was 72, 74 cents for each dollar a man makes. So that's still a significant disadvantage economically. Then you add in the fact that if a woman wants to have children, that's a disruption to her career progress. That's going to have a significant impact on her income earning ability. It's going to interrupt her time. She's going to have to deal with childcare issues. She's got all this stuff. So it's very difficult to raise kids alone. And with the demise of the extended family, with mobility being required to get a good job and keep a good job, you got to be willing to leave town, move around, do what it takes. You're not going to have the grandparents to take care of the kids the way you would have 100 years ago or, or before then. So where does that leave women? It leaves women in a, in a situation where they say, well, if I want to have kids, I need someone to help. What am I going to do? Pay a babysitter? And also, who wants to go through life alone? We're in a situation where we've sort of fragmented our social lives so deeply that we're almost left where you either have a partner or you end up being quite possibly very lonely. And again, when you look at our species, we are the most social species on earth. You know, maybe some forms of ants, you could argue, are even more social, but they don't have the, the levels of communication and altruism and, frankly, love that we're capable of. And so we've painted ourselves into this strange corner where we're the most loving social species alive, and yet we seem to be moving further and further away from any sort of uh, organic community. We're replacing friends with Facebook friends and conversations with tweets. And it's just become uh, a remote control sort of social life. And so, yeah, a partner's all you've got in many cases. And it's your best chance for long-term intimacy because your parents live somewhere else. Your brothers and sisters are long gone, you know, and your friends have all dispersed. So I think there's that. Now, 
to take it to another level, if you look at societies in which women don't need uh, the economic support of a husband, where the society in one way or another, either because the, the husband isn't in a position or the, or the male partner isn't in a position to really help much with the kids, like inner city black America, where it's very hard for these guys to get jobs. A lot of them are in prison or have records, and so they can't get a job. The educational system is horrible. So, you know, they're disadvantaged. So you see a lot of those women, they're not really interested in getting married. Right. And they're getting some public help and they're raising kids uh, together with other women. They sort of bond together in that way. At the other extreme, you look at a society like uh, the Scandinavian societies where women get a lot of uh, state assistance for helping them raise kids. Education is free of high quality. Child care is provided by the state of high quality. The medical care is completely free. Everything's taken care of. So again, in those societies, you see much less eagerness to sign into a marriage with a man. So it's really an economic thing. The desire to be part of a marriage is very primarily driven by an economic motivation, would you say? I think it's those two things. I think it's it's largely economic and also a, a desire for intimacy. Yeah, you know, it's like I said about women trading sex for resources. If you put a woman in a position where that's all she's got to trade, then she will. If you reduce her to quite literally a state of prostitution, then most women will trade sex and get the best deal they can for themselves and their kids. Uh, that's why we say in the book, sort of jokingly, Darwin says your mother's a whore. Right. Because the whole Darwinian vision of female sexuality is that it's all about trading sex for stuff, goods and so, services. So would you say then, in your opinion, is marriage a, a legalized kind of prostitution? <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble here. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to extrapolate. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I certainly think that in many societies it's explicitly so. Right. Where you've got Saudi princes or, or Saudi men, 70 years old, buying 14 year old brides. The women have absolutely no say in who they're married to. Right. So that's pretty clearly a deal being made between men for the sexual life of a woman. So if that's not prostitution, I don't know what it is. Yeah. When, when did we actually start writing this narrative of marriage as a key to happiness or how we view it today in, say, modern North America? When did that first originate? Well, the history of marriage is interesting. As I said, in the, in the Old Testament and certainly through medieval times, it was clearly and explicitly seen as purely a property exchange. The other thing about marriage that's interesting is that you sort of have to track it through history along two lines. One is upper class families and then everyone else. With the upper class families, it's about consolidating large fortunes, not letting them dissipate. So that's why the royalty of England are all cousins and intermarried. The baron from Germany is marrying the duchess of whatever from England because it's all about politics and wealth and economics, of course, which are basically the same thing with two different names. But then on, in the lower levels, in the peasantry, there wasn't a lot of marriage. Why would there be? Because nobody had any property. So you, you see that sort of thing. And then the church got into it and decided that unless a couple was married, when they died, their children could not inherit property. All the property would go to the church. So they set up a really nice racket where you had to pay the church to get married or the church would get all your property. 
They get you coming, they get you going. So it, you can see how it gets shaped by economic concerns. Now, as far as the sort of romanticized uh, Hollywood vision of marriage as being the key to happiness as opposed to the key to you know, prolonging family wealth, there are different visions of that. But one of the arguments that I, I find most compelling is that romantic love really got its start with the troubadours in medieval France. I think Joseph Campbell talks about this a lot, the mythologist. And then other people have confirmed this vision that that sense of romantic love as being some sort of exalted spiritual soulmate kind of experience really didn't start until medieval times. And interestingly, it was sort of in its first manifestation, it was all about the love you would feel for your king's wife, for the queen, for the princess, right? That someone that you would never dream of having sex with. You'd be beheaded if it ever happened. So like a celebrity. Well, but you'd want to fuck Selma Hayek if you could, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) the, The idea is more like it's someone who's just so pristine and beautiful you're not even sullying it with sexual thoughts it's like the whole idea of a knight in shining armor protecting his princess or something going to battle to protect his princess precisely i wanted to back you up a second there and talk a little bit about the rise of agriculture as a a diversion down this uh, path that human sexuality kind of went down before i read in your book before humans didn't really behave this way around monogamy and pair bonding Could you talk a little bit about how agriculture kind of moved us in this direction? Sure. What agriculture did was introduce the notion of private property into the human emotional or conceptual lexicon. So it's important to understand, uh, to give listeners a sort of broad historical framework. Most scientists agree that anatomically modern human beings, so homo sapiens like us, people with brain capacity like ours and bodies like ours, came on the scene between 150 and 200,000 years ago. Some argue more, some argue less, but it's all conjecture. But that's, that's pretty much where we came onto the scene. Now, agriculture came onto the scene at its earliest about 10,000 years ago. So we're looking at 95 percent of our existence as a modern species, right? And then you can go back to earlier forms of our ancestors and and say it's much more than 95 percent. But let's say 95 percent of our existence as a species has been spent in these nomadic hunter-gatherer bands, right? And there are certain things about these bands that are found wherever they're studied, whether it's the Inuit in the Arctic or groups in the outback in in, uh, Australia or in the Amazon rainforest or in Papua New Guinea, wherever they find them, these groups have certain characteristics in common. So we can assume quite safely, I think, that our ancestors' societies had these same characteristics because they lived in, in the same conditions, 150 or fewer people gathering food and eating what they found immediately. They weren't, they didn't have refrigeration or storage. So what do we find? We find egalitarianism, what anthropologists call fierce egalitarianism, which means they're not only egalitarian, but they're insistent upon it. It's a central organizing principle in nomadic hunter-gatherer society. The worst thing you can do as a hunter-gatherer is hoard food, is keep food from other people. And that's not because they're noble. It's not because they're, they're Rousseauian noble savages. It's because you think about the situation they're in. 
Uh, the guys go hunting. The women are gathering. Some days you're going to kill a monkey. Some days you're not going to kill a monkey, right? Some days you're going to come back empty-handed. Most days you're going to come back empty-handed. So if you go out and you shoot a, an antelope, and you bring it back to the village that night. What do you think is going to happen if you say, no, no, this, this meat is only for my wife and my children? People Sorry. are not going to be happy with you. People are not going to be happy. You're going to get kicked out of the group and you're going to die because you need that group to survive. So that behavior doesn't happen, right? Both theoretically and in terms of practical observation, it's well confirmed that that is the worst thing you could possibly do, which puts anthropologists in a funny situation when they try to study hunter-gatherer groups because they show up with a big trunk of chocolate bars and peanut butter to last their six months in the field and they don't want to share it with anybody. And the people they're studying can't understand that. It's like, wait, you want to you live with us? You want to hang out and talk to us and learn all our myths, go hunting with us, but you don't want to share your food with us? That's insane. Right. You were talking in the book about the Yanomami people and when the key anthropologist who wrote all of this literature that claimed that they were the violent people, he was going around and trading tools with everybody there and uh, basically inciting a lot of the violence. Yeah, that's Napoleon Chagnon you're talking about. He was trained not only tools, iron tools, the first iron that these people had ever seen, machetes, which were used for slash and burn, for horticulture, for growing stuff, but also for attacking other tribes. And yeah, I mean, that, that's a whole crazy situation, the Napoleon Chagnon thing. There's a very interesting BBC documentary about that, which I recommend to anybody who's interested, called Secrets of the Tribe. Excellent film. Very interesting film. They give Chagnon plenty of time to talk about his perspective on things, which is like giving him enough rope to hang himself, which seems to be <laughs> what he did from my perspective. <laughs> but anyway, to, to get back to your question, that so what happened was, you know, these hunter-gatherer groups don't have a sense of private property because everything's shared, right? Not only the meat and the, whatever the women gather, but also the tools, the cooking pots, things like that. If you're walking about 10 kilometers a day, which is sort of an average for hunter-gatherer groups, because you have to keep moving, right? Because you've already picked all the berries in this area and you shot the slow old rabbits and now it's, it gets harder to, to get more. So you just keep moving along. So you're walking 5, 10 kilometers a day. Now, does everyone need to carry their own cooking pot? If there are 50 of you, how many cooking pots do you need? You don't need 50 cooking pots. So what happens is you figure out how many you need and you take turns carrying those and someone else carries the branches that you might use for your shelter and someone else carries the net for fishing and whatever and you share it. Again, not because you're noble and some sort of higher form of human being, just because that's the most efficient way of mitigating risk. Now, we still do that, right? Nobody thinks they're noble when they pay their insurance premiums or when we pay our taxes. Uh, maybe in Italy, they think they're noble if they pay their taxes. But elsewhere, we just consider it, you know, that's just part of life. You pay your taxes, and, and if you get in trouble, you've got a system there to take care of you, to take care of your family if something happens to you. So in a hunter-gatherer context, that's what sharing accomplished, right? So until the advent of agriculture, nobody really had anything of any import that they were leaving to their children. They didn't have a farm. They didn't have a herd of animals. They didn't have a big house that they had built over 10 years of labor. So where's the concern with genetic paternity, right? Why would men care whose kid was whose? Especially since everybody's sort of related to everybody anyway. You've been with these people your whole life. 
And so this all turns on a very important question in evolutionary theory, which is right now a raging debate among the, the bigwigs in the evolutionary field, which is where did altruism come from? How do we explain altruism? Because it's a big confusing problem for the purists, the genetic purists like Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker who argue that evolution really comes down to a genetic sort of game theory vision of, of life. We're all just trying to replicate our genes and find any way possible to do that. Exactly. And so according to that theory, if uh, my cousin and my brother were on the train tracks and I only had time to untie one of them before the train came, I would definitely untie my brother because I share more genes with him than I do with my cousin and so on. So that's an interesting thing. As we say in the book, if that's true, you know, wouldn't I be much less upset if my wife had an affair with my brother than if she had an affair with a stranger? Oh, should yeah. I prefer that? So that w would you say that in embracing agriculture, we've kind of shrugged off that altruistic nature that humans have had for so many years? Well, no. And that's what's so interesting about these things. Because I think that what happens is it's like taking a bonobo from the forest and putting him in a zoo. He's in a different context. He has to change his behavior in lots of ways. Maybe he's in a laboratory and he's got to press a lever to get food. He's got to learn symbols and touch screens and do all these things that they're getting them to do in the, in the labs and in the zoos. But he's still a bonobo, right? And he's going to be a bonobo. Even if he's there for 10,000 years, he's still going to be a bonobo. There might be some minor evolutionary changes that take place. But uh, it takes a lot longer than that for an animal to change in, in deep, profound ways. And that applies to us as well. So another interesting quotation from Wilson, Edmund O. Wilson, is uh, we exist in a bizarre combination of stone-aged emotions, medieval beliefs, and godlike technology. So that's where we are. We, we didn't shrug off our altruistic sharing past. I show up here today to do this podcast and there are these beautiful pastries that your friend baked for us, right? I mean, that we still make gestures of kindness and welcome and we share. I was talking to someone the other day, we were talking about violence and whether humans are by nature violent or by nature peaceful and so on. And uh, we can talk about that maybe later if you'd like. But I think that that's like asking what's the natural state of H2O, right? It, it depends on the context. Human beings are very complex animals. We can respond with violence. We can respond with shocking altruism. We help strangers all the time. People give money anonymously. We see some something on TV and we're moved and we send off money not knowing where it's going to go, if, if it will even reach the people we saw on TV. But my point in terms of violence was that certainly we can go either way. But what's interesting is that nobody's walking around suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because they helped a stranger, right? But a lot of people are walking around with suffering from PTSD because they hurt a stranger, even, even unintentionally, even in a car accident. It hurts us to hurt other people. I've got a friend who's a tattoo artist, and we talked about this a lot, and he says he suffers when he gives tattoos. And he thinks most tattoo artists suffer because we are susceptible to the pain of another person, right? Even if the person, even a surgeon, a friend of mine's a surgeon, he said the same thing. It's like, man, every time I cut into a person, a living person, I suffer. I know I'm doing it to help them. I know it's better than not doing it. I know it's still the same. It still hurts me because there's something essentially uh, compassionate about the human animal. We go to a movie and we cry. Those aren't even real people. 
So we're so far removed from any reality, but we still, it still elicits an emotional response from us. So I think we exist in sort of a cloud of emotion and consciousness that very clearly demonstrates we haven't walked away from that altruistic past. So humans like to think of themselves as above animals. We've kind of established that. What does science tell us about these issues? What does science say that the default state of human relationships are supposed to be in? Do we have any kind of scientific evidence that says humans are supposed to be this way or another way? What do the scientists tell us? Speaking for myself, I try to avoid words like supposed to be. Uh, I think I used the word natural earlier and I immediately regretted it. In our book, we try to stay on the observational side and keep away from the prescriptive approach to these things. I think the scientific, it depends on which science you look at, but if you're looking at evolutionary theory, the scientific view seems to be that men and women are doomed to be in an eternal struggle because of our opposing reproductive agendas. So women want to corral wealthy man with superior genetic qualities and have him only impregnate her and stick around and take care of their kids. The whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of thing. Right. Right. And the men want to spread their genes as widely as possible and they don't really care because their investment's very low. It's, you know, a few minutes of pleasurable thrusting and then you're on your way. So it doesn't really matter to the man if, you know, the kid survives or not. And so that's the vision presented by evolutionary theorists of male-female interaction. So we're always struggling. You know, women are always trying to hold on to the guy and the men are always sort of chomping at the bit trying to get out. Now, that's not how our two closest primate relatives behave sexually. It's also not how any group living primate with multiple males behaves. So there are somewhere over 300 different species of primates. Again, scientists differ on what constitutes a species, but well over 300. And many of them live in large multi-male social groups. So when I say multi-male, I'm saying something other than like a gorilla that has one alpha male and then a bunch of females and, and babies. And of the primates that live in these large multi-male social groups, there's not a single one that practices monogamy, sexual monogamy. Not one, unless you believe that we're somehow the only exception. The only monogamous ape is the gibbon, which is a lesser ape, lives in Southeast Asia, never comes down from the treetops, lives in nuclear family units, dispersed, no uh, social organization beyond the nuclear family. They don't get together in big groups. There's no sort of, you know, hierarchical male hierarchy, female hierarchy, not, none of that complex social behavior. And even a lot of uh, uh, gibbon subspecies aren't technically monogamous. They're socially monogamous, but the females are out philandering around, cheating. And, so it's very unlikely from my perspective, if you just look at the scientific data, that humans are anything like a monogamous species. And if we get into anatomical discussions, it's pretty clear that we're not polygonous either, like a gorilla with alpha male controlling several different females. If we were, our penises would be the size of our pinky finger, which is how big a gorilla's penis is. And our testicles would be about the size of a kidney bean, which is what the gorillas is, and inside our bodies, not hanging vulnerably on the outside. And there are lots of other anatomical correlates as well that we can look at. 
So as far as what science has to say about the way we should be, if you say, well, we should live the way our bodies are designed to live, then I think you're looking at a casually promiscuous mating system. And by that, what I mean is, you know, it's interesting. We we use the word promiscuous just because we couldn't think of another word that didn't have that negative connotation. So we made a point of saying we're using it in the original sense, which is to mix. It just means to mix. It doesn't mean to be slutty or something. People think that we're saying, well, our ancestors were having cheap sexual encounters with strangers and lots of one night stands and all this kind of stuff. But you have to understand that in the prehistoric environment, there were no strangers, right? There, there There were very few people and everyone was in a band moving together. Maybe there would be a seasonal thing where different bands would get together for the salmon run or, you know, something like that, where there was a, an unusually high concentration of food resources. But other than that, and, and that may be where people would leave their band and go into another band to avoid incest inter, interbreeding. Um, but other than that, you weren't running into strangers. It wasn't like modern day cities where you walk down the street and you see a stranger every few feet. Even if they had several ongoing sexual relationships at any given time in their lives, they still probably had a hell of a lot more intimacy than most of us do. When I say casual promiscuity, I don't mean it in the way that, you know, to mean what it would mean in our lives, where you're having sex with people you don't know. When I was reading that part of the book, I had some mental images of the women. Would they be as choosy as they are now? I mean, women are, are by nature pretty choosy animals. Seth, you just lost all of our female listeners right there. I know. That's horrible. I'll, I'll try to get them back for you. <laughs> Although I'm probably not the guy to do that. I don't know. Well, first of all, who knows? All we can say, judging from the anatomical evidence, is that it's very likely that women typically had several lovers in any ovulatory cycle because there are anatomical and physiological indications of that in modern women that we can still see. But as far as how individual women felt about it, you know, I'm sure there was just as wide a range of female sexual response then as there is today. You say women are by nature very choosy. Well, some aren't. For example, there's lots of interesting research showing that when women are ovulating, they're much more likely to have one night stand. They're much more likely to wear perfume and jewelry. They dress differently. They walk differently. They're more likely to have unprotected sex with a stranger. So there are all sorts of behavioral changes that occur uh, when women are ovulating. So maybe when you're talking about a particular woman, maybe she's more choosy this week and next week she might not be so choosy. Or there are also indications that women choose different things. So maybe she's still choosy, she's just choosing differently. There's one study that shows that when women are not ovulating, they're more attracted to men with somewhat feminized facial features like Hugh Grant. But when they are ovulating, they're more attracted to sort of chiseled facial features like Brad Pitt. We talk about that in the book, quote, the Walt Whitman line where he says, do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. And I think that's a good way of looking at women. No woman is a single being. We're all, all of us to one extent or another contain lots of different personalities and, and beings. And I think women may be a bit more of that than men. When I get that feeling, I Thank you.
let's talk about porn from a social and cultural phenomenon as it relates to our current economic realities. The book and the phenomenon that everybody's talking about. Fifty Shades of Grey, or as one happy husband called it, Fifty Shades of Yay. It is a novel, but some couples are taking it more like a how-to manual, and it's selling at the unheard of rate of one book a second. Hollywood just bought the film rights for a reported $5 million. That's going to be some movie. All from the mind of a mother with two kids and a very active imagination. Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey, about a young girl swept off her feet by an obscenely wealthy bachelor who protects her and provides for her every need. But there's a kinky catch. He has a fetish for bondage. Western Europe, on the other hand, is much more open when it comes to sexuality. And in countries like the Netherlands, France, and Germany, where they preach comprehensive sex ed, teen birth rates are much lower. So is America's sexual repression not doing us any favors? Get up, get up, get up, get up. Let's make it up tonight. Wake up, wake up. I don't think I need to tell you that in a very special and peculiar way, Western man is hung up on sex. And the major reason for this is that he has a religious background quite unique. But Christianity is, of all religions in the world, the one uniquely preoccupied with sex. More so than priapism, more so than tantric yoga, more so than any kind of fertility cult which has ever existed on the face of the earth. There has never, never, never been a religion in which sexuality was so important. I remember when I was a boy in school, we used to have a preacher. He came to us every year, the same man, once a year, and he always talked on the subject of drink, gambling, and immorality. I remember the way he rolled it round his tongue, and it was very clear what immorality was. And also, I might point out, most churches in America and in England and in other parts of uh, the Western world are, frankly, sexual regulation societies. <laughs> they occasionally get excited about other moral issues, but really not very much. You study, for example, a Roman Catholic manual of moral theology. These manuals of moral theology are technical books about sins of all kinds, just exactly what they are, how they're done, how grave they are. And uh, when they get to the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, the volume expands like this. In fact, it occupies two-thirds of the whole book, all the details. So we have, in a very special way, got sex on the brain, which isn't exactly the right place for it. The problem of why sexual pleasure of all pleasures, as a kind of really supreme pleasure, is singled out for religious people to be particularly afraid of. And this reflects in part, you see, an attitude to the physical world. Because it is, after all, through sexuality that we have, along with eating, our most fundamental relationship to materiality, to nature to the physical universe. And it is the point at which we can become most attached to the body, to the physical organism, to material life. The other reason why it's problematic is more subtle. 
Sexuality is something which you cannot get rid of. Do what you may. Life is sexual. And this feature of life uh, can be looked at in one of two ways. You can say on the one hand that all man's higher ideals, his spirituality and so forth, is simply repressed sexuality. Or on the other hand, you can say that human sexuality is a manifestation, a particular form or expression of what is spiritual, metaphysical, divine, or whatever you want to call it. Then we come to a view of a religion in which sex is a very special taboo, which is rather unusual. It's normally said, you see, we ask that Christianity is a religion in which sex is taboo, and this, there's simply no getting around it. If you look at Tibetan Buddhist iconography, their images, or you look in Hindu temples, you will find things that Europeans and Americans have never been able to understand. Here are images of Buddhas and of the gods engaged in amazing diversions with their female counterparts. <laughs> and everybody thinks that these are kind of dirty sculptures. <laughs> now they're nothing of the kind. They are saying to the people who look at them, the play of man and woman is on that level, on the level of biology, a reflection of the fundamental play of the cosmos. The play of the positive and negative principles, of the light and the dark, of the mental and the material, they all play together. <coughs> and the function of sexual play is not merely the survival and utilitarian function of reproducing the species, as it is among animals to a very large extent. What peculiarly distinguishes human sexuality is that it brings the partners closer and closer to each other in an intense state of united feeling. In other words, it is a sacrament, the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace bringing about love. And so, if that is peculiar to human beings, it is perfect nonsense to degrade human sexuality by saying it should only be carried on in the way that the animals do theirs. Because they have not yet, as it were, evolved to the place where sex is the sacramental expression of man and woman's love. And this love in that sense is a kind of enthusiasm, which means a being possessed by the divine, falling in love, uh, although considered by practical people to be a sort of madness, is actually the same sort of thing as the mystical vision, uh, a grace. And in its light, we see people in their divine aspect. And it is by this tension, this play of the opposites, that we have the love that makes the world go round. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, episode number 54. Today we're talking with Chris Ryan, author of Sex at Dawn. And 
And so we talked a little bit about the scientific evidence and looking at anatomy and some of the more physical sciences, but what does anthropology have to tell us about how other cultures have managed human male-female relationships? And does our modern notion of marriage translate to other cultures or was it something else entirely? Well, this is all a very interesting area to look at because, first of all, Lots of anthropologists argue that marriage is a universal human institution, that it's found in every society that's ever been studied. Now, what we do in Sex at Dawn is we go back and, and look at some of those societies and, and look at what it is that anthropologists are calling marriage. And we find that it's like if you say every animal you look at, you call it a dog, then you could say dogs exist in every part of the world. Antarctica, those things that you call a penguin, I call them a dog. So there are dogs in Antarctica. That's what they're doing with marriage. It's like, and we, we look at one society in the Amazon where they say marriage is also practiced in this culture. And okay, well, there's no property exchange because there is no property. They're hunter-gatherers. There's no expectation of permanence. There's no expectation that the man is going to have any special responsibility for taking care of the children. There's no expectation that the woman is only going to be having sex with that man, so they even would be his children. And divorce, the marriage is indicated by the fact that either the man or the woman unhooks his or her hammock and hangs it next to the other one. So you unhook your hammock from wherever it was over next to your mother or whatever, and you hang it next to this guy that you're close to. And the anthropologist says, aha, uh -huh, oh, they just got married. They're married now. Okay. And then a few months later, you get sick of him and you take your hammock and you hang it up next to your mother's again. And the anthropologist says, oh, they're now divorced. Okay. Let me check that box. Is that marriage? What the hell is that? Or we talk about the Moswo in China, a very interesting society that practice something they call sese. Now, the anthropologists call it walking marriage, but if you look at the, the translation in the language, it means walking. There's nothing about marriage. And we quote from some interviews that were done with people who live in this society, and they say, no, it's not marriage. It has nothing to do with marriage. Why do you keep calling it marriage? They believe that the emotions, that love is something like the weather. It comes, it goes, you can't control it, you don't know how, thing, how long it's going to last. And every interaction that they have, every, every sexual event is seen as a one-time only thing. Now, maybe it'll happen again tomorrow, maybe it won't. Maybe it'll rain tomorrow, maybe it won't. And they see any sort of effort to control another person's sex life, and this is men and women, by the way, as being shameful, ridiculous, pitiful behavior. So then jealousy is just cultural then? Well, jealousy is another issue. Jealousy is what we argue in the book is that it is part of human nature in that jealousy is an expression of fear. Jealousy is an expression of insecurity and fear of losing something that's important to you. So in that sense, Jealousy is part of human nature. It's part of animal nature. You can see your cat lying on the windowsill in the sunny spot and another cat comes by and the, there's conflict there because one cat wants what the other cat has and she doesn't want to give it up. And So that is sort of an expression of one sort of jealousy. You don't want to lose what you've got, what you're enjoying. But 
There are societies that create a sense of insecurity around these relationships and see the fear of losing it and the sort of a proprietary approach to our relationships as normal. So these societies normalize those things. And then there are other societies that minimize them and see them as being pathological. So they sort of uh, associate shame or loss of dignity with these feelings. In other words, it's complicated to say, well, jealousy is just cultural. I don't think it's just cultural, but I think it's expressed through a cultural prism. So in the book, we say, obviously, we live in a society that maximizes, that amplifies the sense of fear around it. A, because of what I said earlier, that intimacy is a scarce commodity in our society because we live these fragmented, lonely lives it's hard to find someone you really want to share with, but you do. You do want to share. Give me someone to love. I just want someone to love. That's a very strong feeling that we have. So in the book, we talk about songs like When a Man Loves a Woman. Everyone knows the song, the whiny classic from, I guess it's the 60s, Percy Sledge. When a man loves a woman, he'll sleep out in the rain if she says that's the way it has to be. He'll spend his last dime to give her the things she needs. He'll turn his back on his best friend. I mean, when a man loves a woman, he'll express it by being a completely undignified fool sleeping in the rain. He'll be a loser. He will just toss away everything because that's what love is. That's what real love is in the Western world. Now, you play that song for someone in an Amazonian tribe or the Moswo in China and, and they'll laugh you out of town. It's ridiculous. That's not what love is. And how do these other cultures manage jealousy? Is it just that our culture amplifies the jealousy because of the fear, like you're saying, or do they have some way that they actually adapt to that jealousy in their society? Yeah, different societies have different sort of built-in rituals or, or practices that minimize the power of jealousy. For example, I think it's the Kulina in the Amazon basin who they do have what at least what anthropologists call a marriage ceremony, which it is a ritual around forming a long-term partnership. But what they do is the man and the woman will lie down next to each other on the ground and the, the people gather around them in a circle and the elder women will sort of shout at them, telling, you know, giving them like things to remember that you always have to make sure you cook well and be nice to your kids or whatever, you know, whatever the, the advice is that they're giving. And one of the pieces of advice that's always given is, and don't get jealous about your partners having lovers. I mean, imagine that if before you can now kiss the bride, imagine if, oh, and by the way, don't get uptight about her lovers. That's part of their marriage ceremony. And in many of these, these societies, they have rituals, either monthly, yearly, whatever, that include uh, not only permission to have sex with someone other than your normal partner, but the requirement that you have sex with someone other than your normal partner. And, and that night, you cannot have sex with your normal partner. Now, it's interesting to think about what sort of social function these rituals, the importance of these rituals, because, again, we're talking about societies with uh, about 150 or fewer people. And I use that number that's known as Dunbar's number because it's been shown that 150 is the maximum number of people that we can actually know, that our brains can handle 150 actual relationships with other people. Beyond that, it becomes an abstraction and, and we Facebook friends and Twitter feeds and, you know, statistics. So 
that's as much as we can handle. That's as much as we could handle before. So even if there was enough food for a group that large, which probably there wasn't in most environments, once people get into groups of more than 150 or so, they tend to splinter into smaller groups, even if there's no conflict, just as a way to sort of keep track of everybody. What happens is that these people are so interdependent upon each other that if the nuclear family ties became very strong, that would be a source of conflict within the group. So they have these rituals as a way to keep sort of the group level identity more important than any small sort of micro group identities. One of the rituals I really like is we talk about it in the book. It's one of the groups in the Amazon basin. They, they have a thing where the women will wake up in the morning and you know the men have been sort of lazy for a while and haven't gone hunting. And so the women will go around the village singing a song which basically translates to, we haven't had any meat for a long time. You guys are lazy bastards lying in your hammocks. Get up and go get us some meat. And I wrote to the anthropologist who, who lived with them and tells the story. And I asked, does meat have a sort of a double entendre with these people? And he said, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, they know what they're saying. They're really subtle with the innuendo there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you lazy bums, get us, go get us some meat. And while they're singing this song, the women go around the village and they've got a stick and they'll beat on the pole, the, the hammock pole. So a particular woman will step away from the group and beat on a guy's hammock pole. All right. And what that means is if you, this guy in the hammock, go out hunting and come home with some meat tonight, I'll sleep with you. Right. So it's, a, wow. it's her way of saying, hey, here's, here's a little motivation for you. Right. Now, if the guy is really not into that woman, he can claim, you know, he's got, oh, so upset stomach or whatever, and that, you know, he can get out of it. So the guys who go for it, it's like, okay, if I get something today, I sleep with that woman tonight. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The guys will get out of their hammocks and, you know, and get their bows and arrows and go off into the jungle in a group. But they hunt individually or in groups of two. They don't hunt in a group. But what they do is, before they split up, they agree to meet back at a certain place before they go into the village. So they'll go off and hunt and then they come back and they meet. And, you know, maybe there are 10 guys and three of them shot a boar or a monkey or something. And what they do is they cut up the meat before they go into the village. So when they walk into the village, each man has a piece of meat. So they're actually cooperating to make sure that everybody gets laid some of those women are partners of some of those men. They're sort of principal primary partner. Now, do you think that this is a secret that the guys share and just all of them know, like, hey, we're going to go out <laughs> and get this meat? And do you think that the women actually know that this whole thing is rigged or what? what's the deal there? Well, yeah, I think the women know because who comes into the village with a quarter of a monkey? <laughs> perfectly sliced out <laughs> you know you don't find a pre-butchered monkey hindquarter in the jungle yeah so it's it's really funny we quote the whole passage from this anthropological report because at the very end it's it's all very dry scientific language and then they do this and then they do that and and then at the end it says i think it's the kulina he says the kulina engage in this ritual with great frequency and in good humor <laughs> so we've been talking for a while now about some of the different ways that marriage is uh, implemented in, in different societies and some of the scientific evidence to say that, you know, we had a uh, pair mating a bit different than how we view it now in our society. 
I was wondering, even in Western societies, you've been in Spain for 20 years or so, you've lived there. How do you see courtship and the way that relationships are handled in Spain differently than maybe how we do it in the U.S. or Canada? Interesting, interesting that, you know, even though Spain is ostensibly a Catholic country, there is an official government religion. So on paper, it would be a more religious country. I find the sense of shame around sexuality to be far less prevalent in Spain than it is in the U.S. and Canada. One of the reasons I've lived in Spain for so long, to be honest, is that I had traveled all around the world when I got to Spain. I was on my way somewhere else, actually. And the first night I was in Barcelona, I got robbed. And while I was waiting for a new passport and new papers and stuff, I met a friend that I had I'd met in Mexico a couple of years earlier, and he started showing me around and introducing me to friends of his. And someone else offered me a job teaching English, and I met some women. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, maybe I'll just hang out in Barcelona, you know, for a few months or whatever. That was 1989. Okay, I'm still there essentially. And one of the reasons I'm still there is that I remember. Walking down the street, I was teaching English. I was doing private classes in different parts of the city, so I was sort of moving around a lot. And there were buses I could take. But I remember walking down the street and just saying, you know, by the time I walked 20 blocks and I would arrive with more energy than I had when I left because there's a feeling of sexual tension on the street in Barcelona and and Spain in general that is really wonderful. There's flirting, there's, there's smiling, there's eye contact, there's happiness. There's this sort of innocent sexuality that's expressed in Spanish culture that is so far from what you find in North America. And I think it's largely because women in North America feel threatened. They feel afraid. So a woman in Spain, walking down the street, looking beautiful, if she walks by and you just obviously are looking at her, not like leering and and drooling, but, you know, just like, wow, that makes her smile. She's happy. That's what she wants. She doesn't feel threatened by that. And she might smile right back at you. And that doesn't mean she wants to meet you or wants to give you her number or wants anything. It just means, yeah, you looked at me. I saw you look at me. It made us both happy. Have a good day. That's all it means. And what happens is then that everyone gets energy from this. Everybody gets a little charge to the battery from this. And everybody's happy. There's no downside. And I remember thinking, like, human sexuality is like the the solar power of the soul. It's clean energy. There's no waste. There's no dirty smoke billowing out. There's nothing you'd have to dump in the river afterwards. And the way we deal with it in North America is like, turning away from solar energy and saying, no, no, this coal works really well for us. We've got the coal infrastructure set up, so we're going to stick with the coal. It, it just makes everything dirty and, and unnecessarily destructive. So that, that's one thing I noticed in Spain that's very different. The other thing, and maybe it's related, is that I think a lot of married couples in Spain, you know, certainly in Italy and France probably as well, there's sort of an unspoken understanding that marriage is about something much bigger and more important than everlasting sexual attraction. So I think there's a sense that, look, we got married because we want to have kids together, because we like each other, because we have fun together, we want to live our lives together. But there's not an expectation that 
the sexual passion is necessarily going to last a lifetime the way I think a lot of people in North America tend to have this unrealistic Hollywood view of happiness ever after. And so because that expectation is more realistic, I think there's more space in Spanish relationships and marriages. People have lovers and that's not really a big surprise or a big problem. I think it becomes a problem when there's a lack of discretion. So I think in that's more of an issue in Spanish marriages. Like the Berlusconi kind of. Berlusconi, uh, Strauss-Kahn, we could name lots of uh, European examples. I mean, for example, everyone in Spain knows the king has lovers all over the country. Everyone knows it because they'll see him in a restaurant. I heard a friend of mine saw him in Ibiza with this woman and that woman. She's a movie star and they were kissing and dancing, whatever. Everyone knows, but no one cares. No one, no one talks about it. It's not in the newspaper. And it's not that if you printed it in the newspaper, you'd be out of business because the state would come down on you or something. It's just that there's an understanding of like, of course, he's a king and he's a good looking guy and hey, good for him, whatever. And as long as he isn't humiliating the queen and as long as the queen seems happy and she seems like a nice woman and they have, they have a good relationship, you know what I mean? There, there's an acceptance that life is more complicated than a Hollywood movie. Right. Um, and in the United States, when, when the president has you know, a little fling with a Monica Lewinsky type person, it's almost grounds for impeachment by itself, right? Yeah. And the guy who's leading the impeachment proceedings is stooping his, his assistant while he's married, but still claiming, she's still claiming to be a, an Orthodox Catholic. I mean, the, the hypocrisy is just unbelievable in the United States. But People are willing to swallow so much bullshit in defense of their outdated mode of thinking. There's a quote we use in the book from Arthur Miller, the playwright who was married to Marilyn Monroe for a while. Uh, he said that an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. And I think what's happening in North America and one of the things that we've been fortunate about with the book, I think that's made the book uh, more popular than it may have been otherwise, is that we're at a tipping point in North America where people are finally starting to see that this happily ever after vision of marriage is not working. It's not accurate. It, as you started with the divorce rates are amazing. If we had airplanes, if one out of every two airplanes fell out of the sky for unexplained reasons, I think we'd be redesigning the airplanes, right? Instead of saying, no, no, this is the way God intended airplanes to be built and we're just going to keep building them this way and, you know, we'll just make it harder to survive a crash with these anti-divorce laws and all this stuff. The reaction is insane. There's a book called Lust in Translation by Pamela Druckerman. Uh, she lives in, in Paris and she went around the world looking at how people deal with infidelity, what do they consider infidelity. A lot of women in the States, for example, and, and men too, I guess, would consider looking at porn to be cheating. Whereas in other societies, that's ridiculous. You know, look at, uh, come on, how's that cheating, right? For example, in Russia, I think she found that if you had sex with someone else on vacation, that doesn't count. And then in other countries like Japan, if, you have se if you're paying for sex, that doesn't count. It's like the area code thing, right? If, if you're outside the area code, it doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to live in Alaska because I think the whole damn state is one area code. You've got to be careful. You don't want to live in a sparsely populated area. Yeah, I live in Manhattan. You just take the subway over to Brooklyn. You're good to go. Yeah. <laughs>
So you mentioned that that quote from Arthur Miller that said that when an era is over. Yeah, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Right. So as we, we've seen American culture spreading all over the world, when I was in Barcelona last year, I saw a lot of American culture there. And we see American movies all over Europe and all over the world. So is America's reign of influence coming to an end or is it is it spreading or where is it where is it going you mean in terms of the marital industrial complex right in terms of is marriage is the idea of having these fairy tale marriages is that idea spreading to other cultures or is it just staying here and, and ending i think it's a little of both i think it's sort of like the waves are emanating out from the collapsed star you do see these these images of movies are one of the few things that America still exports successfully. And so you do see that. But I think when you see it in other cultures, it takes a lot more than a movie to change the way people see reality, uh, the way they see. And in this book I mentioned, Lust in Translation, Druckerman talks about a script to talk about movies. She says that in the United States, there's a script that everyone knows. So you find out your wife's been cheating on you. That's it. She had a lover. That's it. Marriage is over. doesn't matter. You got three kids and you really like each other and your fa- or love each other and your families love each other. And you've got all the shared history and, you know, businesses together and property and doesn't matter. She screwed another guy. That is it. It's over. When she talks to people around the world about this, they consider that to be another sign of America's adolescent stance. American culture looks very adolescent from outside. I mean, even from Canada, I'm sure it looks pretty adolescent in lots of ways. But certainly from Spain or Brazil or wherever, it's like, come on, guys, you know, you're obsessed with sex. More porn comes out of LA than anywhere else in the planet. And yet more porn, more dildos, more vibrators, more, you know, the whole thing It's like the drug war. You guys are doing all the drugs, and yet you've got the war against drugs. It's the most sexualized society on the planet, and yet it's the most shamed society on the planet. In speaking about America's influence and the direction it's headed as a country, a lot of the topics we cover on our show deal with the economic decline that the world, and specifically the U.S., is experiencing. What findings that you have come across in your book do you think could make economic adaptations easier for people in a declining economy? That's an interesting question. I I think that if you're looking for silver linings to the declining economy, I think that one of the places we could look is sort of a, a reconfiguration of our family and living structures. Particularly in the United States, you've got these McMansions where you know, one family's living in a house with nine bedrooms and four car garage and, you know, all this stuff. That's over, right? They're all sitting there empty right now. So I think it would be very interesting if people started saying, well, wait a minute, why can't five women and their kids and whatever men are involved with those families share a house like that? Why do we all have to have our own washing machine and, and dryer? Why do we all have to have our own widescreen TVs and our own this and our own that? And all? If we can't afford it, maybe what will happen is it will force us into more living situations that are actually more in alignment with our evolved predispositions. And one of the things I think is really interesting, and it's something I'll be writing about a lot in my next book, which is tentatively titled Civilized to Death, is 
that the tendency, the, the trajectory of civilization, at least Western civilization, is that we run toward money. We want money. And what do we do with our money? We insulate ourselves. We protect ourselves. We buy bigger houses, separate ourselves from our neighbors. And then we get more money. We build a fence around the house and we get more money. You know, we buy an island and then we get a private jet so we don't have to fly on airplanes with other people. It's all about getting away from other people. And then we're miserable because there are no other people around. We're lonely. So you get the Howard Hughes with his long fingernails. So the whole sort of trajectory of civilized life seems to be away from life itself. It's insane, the contortions that we get into to avoid life and to avoid death. We bury our dead in hermetically sealed stainless steel caskets. What are we thinking? Why? What are we saving it for? You might as well refrigerate our dead. Let's all just put them in freezers and, you know, I mean, Ziploc bags or something. I don't understand. And you can get velvet-lined coffins and all these fancy upgrades. Got to be comfortable. Got to be comfortable when your body's rotting. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, don't want to end on a downer like that. I think the good thing about poverty, <laughs> if you could say this, <laughs> is that it forces us to be real. And there is something comforting about reality. Even when reality sucks, there's something comforting about it because it's real. At least it's real. That's very true. I'm wondering how you respond to some of your critics who say that family values are the creme de la creme of civilization and you can't really have these kind of things but that you're talking about, like multi- partner relationships and that's not good for children and that's not good for these things. I wonder how you respond to your, some of your critics when they bring up these ideas and you know when they bring up these emotional issues, how do you respond with all this data back to them? You know, generally I don't respond because when they're clearly making an emotional argument, if you can call it that, there's no point in responding because you're not going to change anyone's mind. It's like arguing about religion or something. If someone believes, they believe. And it's not my job to convince them they're wrong. And, and honestly, I don't want to convince them they're wrong. As, as I often say in interviews and presentations and things, this book isn't a diatribe against monogamy. It's not saying there's anything wrong with monogamy. In fact, I see monogamy as being like vegetarianism that I respect very much. And I think it can be healthy, it can be ethical, it can be environmentally advantageous, it, it can be great on so many different levels. But it, it doesn't come naturally to our species. So you can choose it. It's a path and it can be a wonderful path, but it's an uphill path. That's all I, I want to say to people. The fact that you've decided to become a vegetarian doesn't mean that bacon suddenly stops smelling good. People seem to understand it when I put it that way. So if you understand that, if, if you see that this is something that runs against your natural proclivities, then maybe you'll be more forgiving of yourself and your partner when somebody makes a mistake or steps out of line or is looking at someone else or thinking of someone else. Or I think you frame the whole endeavor of trying to lead a monogamous life in a much more understanding, compassionate way, which paradoxically, perhaps, will give you greater success. If you think vegetarianism is going to be easy, that all you have to do is snap your fingers and you'll never want to eat a pepperoni pizza again, you're probably not going to be a vegetarian very long. But if you understand 
that you're going to feel that, that you're going to be drawn to that and you don't feel shame about it, then you're going to have a better chance of sticking to what you decide to do. And that's an important thing. So as far as critiques, I try not to really get involved very much. Just yesterday, coincidentally, I recorded a podcast that I think I'm going to do my own podcast because I've done so many of these. I did one with a comedian in LA a couple of weeks ago and he was like, dude, why aren't you doing a podcast? You've got like a built-in audience. You've got all these people on Facebook, Twitter, and the book, everything. So I think I'm going I'm to start doing one. I recorded it just down the street from where we are today, just in the next block with a friend of mine. And he said, okay, for a year, he's been bugging me to respond to this critical review of the book that was in an academic journal called Evolutionary Psychology. And it's really the only critical review, scientific review that has come out. And I said, all right, look, I'll, fi- I'll do it talking. I'm not going to spend an afternoon writing because who's going to read it? And the people who do read it, their, their minds aren't going to be changed. If they're people who agree with me, they're going to read it and say, see, yeah, he was right. That's all bullshit. Or there are people who don't agree with me, they're going to say, eh, yeah, that doesn't change anything. He didn't say this or that or whatever. When you write a book like this where there are a lot of emotional responses, I think you sort of have to discipline yourself not to get involved with that very much because you could just end up losing all your time. And also it puts you in a sort of whiny defensive position that I don't really want to be in. So I had a question. How do you bring these ideas up to children? So you, <laughs> you, you see kids have all these ideas about you know their mother and their father. How do you start saying, well, mom's going to have another uh, relationship? And then in school, you, you find out that the kids are getting made fun of because of these things. How, how do you bring these ideas up to kids? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't have kids. And, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I don't want to have to explain my life to them. Well, again, I, uh, we don't get into shoulds. We don't get into how-tos at all in the book. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. But my gut reaction to that question is you're not telling your kids about your sex life. Well, mommy likes to use a vibrator, but daddy likes butt plugs. You're not having that conversation. So why would you talk to your kids about who's a lover and who's a friend? So, yeah, hey, mommy's going to the park with her friend. Well, so what? Why does the kid have to know the details of your sex life? God knows I don't want to know the details of my parents' sex life. So our last question for you today, I was wondering about how the process of writing this book changed the way that you thought about sexuality. And then also if you think that as a species, maybe, or as a culture, we're just thinking about sex too much. Are we just obsessing over it too much? Well, I'll take the the second part of that first. It's like what I was saying about, you know, the drug trade. You know, that there's this huge demand and then there's the huge industrial response to the demand. And so it almost becomes, well, not almost, it, it has become an industry that feeds on itself. There are a lot of people whose livelihood depends upon there being a huge cocaine problem in the U.S. because if you legalize it or if people suddenly stopped using it, then what happens to all those border guards and narcotics officers and this and that. So I I think sexuality has sort of entered into that same dynamic where on the one side, we publicly disavow a lot of our sexual lives. And because of the vehemence of that public shame and disavowal, it adds energy to the private 
situation to the private passions and 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 all that. So it's like they say that who has the hottest sex? It's the people who are most ashamed. It's the the priest and the nun who sneak off into the woods. They have a really hot time because it's so nasty, right? It's so nasty. So I think there's some of that going on. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is, yes, I think we think about sex too much, but that's because we're trying not to think about it. I think if we somehow took the lid off, it would relieve a lot of that pressure. It's like you're, you, you use those pressure cookers and there's the you know, high pressure thing. You take the lid off and suddenly there's, the pressure dissipates and the, the steam just sort of goes off naturally. So I think that's what human sexuality is. It's a very interesting kind of energy. As I said earlier, it's like a, a solar energy. It's, it's this clean energy. And it's also, it renews itself. It's like hunger. It's something you satisfy it and a day or two later, it's back. So it's sort of a, like a perpetual motion machine in a way. And that could be such a positive thing. That could be such a source of, of endless energy for us instead of constant source of problems. Now, the first part of your question, how has writing the book changed my feelings about sexuality? And it's changed my feeling in the sense that after 10 years of researching this stuff and, and now a few years of talking about it and interviews, I'm sick of sex. I'm complete. <laughs> I never thought it could happen, but I'm like enough with the sex stuff. So the next book, uh, I thought, you know, I'd write a follow-up, uh, another book about sex, but uh, my editor and, and agent, everybody was like, you know, if you do that, you're just going to be the sex guy. Oh, and that, that's great. And you'll be, you know, the go-to guy. But I had some other ideas for larger kind of books, and they all said, no, no, like go for another big idea book that's not necessarily about sex, and then you'll be the big idea guy or one of the big idea guys. So I'm going to step away from a purely sexual uh, subject matter in the next book. Uh, I'm glad to do that. But one of the things that surprised me, one of the, the bits of information I came uh, across that surprised me when I was doing the research, aside from all these funny rituals in the Amazon and the Mosul and all these people we've spoken about, one of the things that really shocked me was I was looking into swingers and the whole swinger culture in the, in the U.S. and Canada. And I was reading a book written by a Canadian, actually, called The Lifestyle by Terry Gould. I think he might be from Vancouver. Anyway, it's, it's a very good book. And he talked about how the first swingers in modern American society in the 1940s, they were fighter jet pilots in the Pacific in World War II. And these guys had the highest fatality rates of any branch of the military. So more of them died than any other in terms of percentages. And what they were doing back on the base was they were having these parties with their, their buddies and their buddies' wives, and they were all having sex with each other's wives. And there were interviews. People talked about it later. And, and what they said was, yeah, it sounds really like it was about sex, but really what it was about was knowing that these guys would take care of your wife if you didn't come back. It was about love. It was about bonding. It was about building a sort of intimacy that was stronger than an insurance policy or, or hey, buddy, take care of my wife if I die. Like a community intimacy. Or a family intimacy. It was using sex as a way of creating intimate bonds that were helping these people face down a life or death situation. And that's exactly what our hunter-gatherer ancestors were doing. 
So that was a piece of information that really hit me hard. This idea of these super straight, crew cut, uniformed, yes sir, no sir guys saying the best way that I know that my wife and kids will be taken care of is if, if we share sex, share the most intimate things, that's what's gonna really work. To me, that was really moving. like you dropped the turkey roast on the ground. Is it all right? Oh, thank you, son. I'm doing just fine. I'm just a little weak. My grandson, Lucas, it's so good to see you. Oh, hello, Granny. Nice to see you, too. I missed you so much. I'm glad we're together for the holiday dinner. Oh, yes, it's so good to see you. You know, I've been reading so much because I've just had to stay at home and no one's visited me. But you know what I always say? Keep your mind sharp by learning. Now, Lucas, did you learn anything today? As a matter of fact, Granny, I have been learning things every day. I listen to this crazy podcast with these two ridiculous Americans. It's called The Extra Environmentalist. Have you heard of it before? No, that sounds like one of those drugs that people take and go to crazy disco parties. Well, it is a little bit like taking a crazy drug, except you take it in through your ears. Today, they were talking with this guy named Chris Ryan. Have you heard of him? He wrote this book called Sex at Dawn. Favorite time right when I woke up. Now tell me more, Lucas. No, Granny, it's not that way. This is about the dawn of human sexuality. He goes back and talks about what human sexuality was like before agriculture, and then he talks about how agriculture has helped to shape what human sexuality is and what it is becoming right now to this day. Well, that's good to trace how, how marriage has been between one man and one woman throughout history. That's an important lesson to teach people in these times. It's a very interesting concept to think about that maybe not everybody was in a single pair bond throughout history. In fact, through Chris Ryan, I've learned that it's a very, very recent thing that these human pair bonds have become so monogamous in the past, what, like 200 years? It was fascinating. We 
Wait, what are, what are you saying, Lucas? Is not between one man and one woman throughout all history? No, in fact, Grandma, the hunters and gatherers lived in these small groups of people, so they knew all the people around. And so they would only care about making sure that their small band of people were able to survive. And this generally meant that women would have sex with many different men in the tribe. Can you imagine that? You mean like in an extended family? Exactly, Grandma. Can you imagine that if you were all living together with a bunch, 200 of your favorite people and not so favorite people, and they're all just having sex with each other? Oh, I think that I'm gonna have to sit down, Lucas. It's a, uh, oh my, I my heart medication. Oh. In fact, Grandma, I wanted to have a little bit more of a conversation about these things, so I invited the extra environmentalist guys over for the dinner. Is it okay if they come eat with us? Oh my, I'm just gonna have to go sit down. I don't care who's eating with us now. Oh, I think it's the extra environmentalist. Let's go see if they're there. Oh. Hey guys, I was just telling Grandma all about your latest interview, Sex at Dawn. Chris Ryan was so cool. Oh, well thanks, Lucas. I really appreciate you uh, spreading the word, though when you talk about some of these ideas to your family members, you have to be pretty careful about how you frame it. That's right, man. You got to be careful. When you're talking about faulty marriages and the way that people think about long-held institutional beliefs. You have to be really sensitive. You're right, guys. My grandma's not feeling too well right now. What can I tell her that'll make her feel a little bit better? I would just give her a glass of wine and start talking about politics because political discussions at family dinners always go over much better than questioning marriage. Oh, I wish that Mitt Romney had won. He's so pretty as a man. He comes from the Mormon faith, which believes all sorts of interesting things about marriage. Oh, my! And with that, I think we'll just go over here into this other room and just keep continuing the conversation. Bye, Granny. Oh, goodbye, guys. It's going to take me a while to recover from all that. Come back in when you're hungry and want to eat with your grandmother, Lucas. Okay, Grandma, I'm going to hang out with these extra environmentalists for a little bit. So what did you guys think of Chris Ryan? Yeah, that was a pretty fascinating discussion of the problems of our institutions and specifically the institution of marriage in our society today. And I liked what Chris Ryan brought up that if we had designed planes and half of them had crashed, if the response was just to make it even harder to survive a crash, then we're really not doing people any favors. But that's not to say that we're just going around saying that finding a life partner and someone you want to live with and have an intimate relationship is failed and doomed from the start. But the North American idea of marriage, where you're just going to have never-ending sexual passion for this other person, is going to go on and on forever. And what's really great is if you can look at marriage and look at relationships in a way where you can realize that there are more things than just the sexual aspect of the relationship. And even though that is an important aspect of the relationship, many people do want to live together and spend the rest of their lives together because there is something even deeper than that. And so that's really one of the core messages that I take away from Chris Ryan. I really liked how at the end he was saying that one of the goals in writing the book was to help people who have been through hard times in their marriages and in their relationships to be able to understand where those emotions and where those feelings are coming from. I think that's an important thing to to really think about Justin is because we are animals and you know what we're looking for is just that closeness and that love and that security that comes with being in close pair bonds. And I thought the uh, example that he gave of the squadron of uh, fighters of 
fighter pilots during World War II was really a touching thing. You know, these guys, these straight-cut, straight-laced guys who are facing danger on a regular basis and who decided to make themselves so open to one another so that they took down the barriers that, that normally separate people. And so that one of, if one of them dies, they all, all are going to take care of the other guy's wife. I think that was a really touching thing. It kind of uh, it speaks to the idea of looking out for a group instead of just individualized. And right now, the way our sexuality in this society right now is kind of put together is very much around the single family unit. You know, we all live in our separate houses. We all go to our separate jobs. We kind of work and live and love in a very secluded way. And this is very different than it was before the advent of agriculture. I thought that was a very interesting thing. We talked with Ronald Wright about progress traps and how agriculture is, in fact, one of these progress traps that humanity has fallen into. I really like the quote by Edmund O. Wilson that he talked to, that Chris Ryan talked about during the show, where he said, we exist in a bizarre combination of Stone Age emotions, medieval beliefs, and godlike technologies. And that's really, I think, where we are in society right now. So many of, of our, our institutions and our ways of thinking and even the way we react to things is so much in the past. But our tools now, the things that we interact with and the way that we move about and the way we work are so much in the future. I mean, the communication technology that we have now is so much more advanced than anything we had maybe even 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But but our institutions, say, of like marriage and education, they all go back very, very far, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years for some things. So we live in this, in this kind of juxtaposition of two different ages. We work with these old, old institutions, and we also are working, trying to work into these new institutions, these new technologies, which make us pretty much like omnipotent beings. Yeah. And how often do we talk about on our show different ways of organizing our society that originated in the 19th century on faulty beliefs in the 19th century that we've now discovered have much more depth or were completely wrong? And then we built social institutions around them. And a lot of the focus of our show is on economics and the problems of the economic system. Those arose from various faulty beliefs that came about in the 19th century and now have perpetuated out because when you have 7 billion people on a planet and you multiply these faulty institutions over that many people, some very serious ecological problems develop and some very serious social problems develop and social problems that are now exposing problems in our ideas of marriage. And so that's why it's really great that we can have a book like Sex at Dawn and learn about um, some of the evidence that shows that we lived in a different way. And that way, we can be more forgiving towards our partners and in our lives when we realize that we do have all of these different crazy emotions bubbling up. But in the conversation, we did talk about the United States. And to me, the United States is one of the most highly sexualized societies and highly sexually repressive societies all at the same time. I don't know how you feel about it, Seth, but when I'm there, I just feel like I'm bombarded by sexuality and marketing in you know, pornography, people reading Fifty Shades of Grey, all of these things. And yet the society is so sexually repressive and um, has such, uh, like Chris Ryan said, you know, dirty coal feeling about sexuality. 
I, I don't know. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Justin. You, you look at Los Angeles and you think about the amount of pornography that comes out of that place. And you think about all the advertisements you see. Every single commercial, you, pretty much every single commercial you look at has some kind of sexual undertones. You know, even the car is like, Vroom, and then he has a sexy model and she's got, you see her lips and that's it. And then it's like, buy this thing. But like you say, it is very repressed in our society. And Chris Ryan called it the most shamed on the planet. It's a pretty sad thing. It embrace it tries to embrace these outdated, very repressive kind of sexual mores that say that you're supposed to live in, in a certain sexual way and you're not supposed to do this kind of sexual thing. It's very difficult to live within that sometimes, I would say. And if, and you can see because one in every two marriages fail in the United States. So when you look outside the United States, he Chris Ryan gave a uh, Chris Ryan gave an interesting example of what it's like to walk down the street in Spain. He says that you, when you're looking, you're walking down the street and you see a beautiful woman, you look to the left, you look to the right, you see a beautiful woman. She notices that you're looking at her. She gives you eye contact and she smiles. And that doesn't necessarily mean that she wants you to come over her and talk to her right away. She just is appreciating that you are looking at her. And eye contact is a huge thing. And this is very different from where I live in the United States in the South. There's a lot of sexual mores that are very uh, highly regulated to and people seem to be afraid to talk to one another in a large part. Uh, Chris Ryan talked about this sexual uh, energy that people give off as like the solar power of the soul. And I thought that was a really interesting way to uh, talk about this kind of energy that people seem to give from, to one another. And it's it's very clean. It's, it's, it's not that cold dirtiness that we talk about that uh, you just mentioned before. It's a very clean kind of like solar energy for the soul powering people, making it a better place to live. It's, it's acknowledging it and understanding that sexuality is a part of the human experience and not treating it like it's some nasty, dirty thing. Everybody says, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm completely clean and I only have a sexual relationship with my wife and you know we have kids and then like everybody in our government it seems like they all have mistresses all girls and all kinds of things on the side um but to me chris ryan's book is even more so about the way that we organize the the ways that we live um now and how it's not fulfilling to us even more than just the sexual aspect i mean now holding a job means moving around and following a career path means moving around away from your family away from your friends and that's mind-blowing to somebody who would come from a traditional background before agriculture or even during most of our existence in agriculture you were always around your family and things didn't really change that fast and now it seems like everywhere i go people i went to school with people i was in university with and even people now here in Vancouver is just always moving around all the time, jetting across the world, jetting across the continent, across the country. And so it's really hard to build those bonds. And I totally understand what Chris Ryan is saying when he says that when you have such a hard time in building these uh, strong, intimate relationships because everybody's moving around all the time, sometimes marriage really is the only chance that you get to have that really close life partner, that one person that you can talk to about your emotions. And so in that way, it is really important. But throughout history, you always had this village of people, whether it was your grandmother or multiple family members always around uh, to be part of that. And we don't really have anything like that today. And it reminded me of another thing that Chris Ryan brought up, which was the film Secrets of the Tribe, which I saw here at the Vancouver International Film Festival a little while ago. And in that film, it told the story of the Yanomami people. And the Yanomami people have been horribly misrepresented and exploited by all kinds of different areas of anthropology to judge, quote-unquote, aspects of human nature. 
And so that film was great because it showed all of these different anthropologists and how their viewpoints of the world went in and shaped how they extrapolated ideas of human nature. And so Kenneth Good was one of the anthropologists who went there in 1975, and he was a doctoral candidate at the time in cultural anthropology, and he... Uh, found a Yanomami girl, and the chief there recommended that he marry her. And so when they married, um, they ended up having kids, and so he brought her back to the United States. And the story is much more complex than that. But basically, she ended up going back to the tribe because she couldn't handle the closed-off walls and the fact that in the U.S. we're so used to having this a false notion of privacy where you go to your home and you know there's walls there and you can't see other people and she would wake up every day and see all the people around her that she had known and couldn't handle it so i'll just play a clip here from that yarima thought she was coming down to another rainforest my forest but again the wonders of the flexibility of the human mind she adapted here very very well and she had no problem with our material existence she had problem with that aspect that attracted me down there and that was that feeling of interpersonal relationship, that community, and said she used to say, they live in a box. They live inside, all enclosed, and they look at television. When she wakes up, she sees a whole village, all the people, the leaders, the shamans, the relatives, the loved ones, and the nieces and nephews, and it's all there. And there's her life right before her. Uh, we wake up, she thought it was the saddest, most depressing thing that a man and his wife would go take their children and live enclosed. Uh, all alone. It's not the way. That's why she said when she left, that's not the way humans are meant to live, not one more day. And I, I understood her, but I kind of got, you know, caught up in things here with the kids and the job and all that. That clip, Justin, reminds me a lot of what Chris Ryan was saying about how when anthropologists go in to study these tribes, how they seem to hoard all their peanut butter, all their snack cakes, and they, they don't want to share it with anybody, but they're living with this tribe who shares everything. They share food, they share meat, they share women, they share all the responsibilities of living, and they share the, the raising of their children. And when these anthropologists go into these towns, and they don't share anything, and, they, and they're like, oh, this is just our stash of stuff. We're not going to share it with you. It differs from that whole way of thinking. It's a totally different kind of mindset to go, go around thinking that all this property belongs to you, and, and it doesn't belong to you. This other person, you can't touch it, and if you do, it's a crime. And it's a very, it's a, it's a very interesting dichotomy that 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 soundbite brings up there. And a lot of the original ideas of marriage were about ownership of women and trading them like property. As we were talking about in our interview in the Bible, it was you know don't covet your neighbor's oxen or house or wife. It's not because you had this married relationship and that was something different. It was because this woman was a piece of property. And so it's fascinating to hear about other cultures like the Maswo in China where the women are so open about their uh, their sexuality and completely different ways of organizing living arrangements even if you look into more details about the maswa and um in Sex at Dawn, it goes into far more detail than we could touch on in the conversation, but they had completely changed the ways that living spaces looked in order to facilitate the ways that these sexual relationships would occur among the tribe. And I think that goes back to as we move into a future with scarce financial resources, with scarce oil, with scarce uh, materials, we're going to have to collaborate more. We're going to have to learn how to live together in different ways. And whether that evolves into different sexual relationships or ideas about marriage, 
and intimate relationships or not, it is going to change the way that we have our built environment. And I can totally see in the future how more people are going to live together, multiple families living together. Even here in Vancouver, where house prices are extremely high, despite the bubble starting to burst here, more people from a younger generation, from the 20 to 30 year old generation, want to live together in collective houses or want to live together in uh, like common living spaces. And I think that's a big shift among our younger generation in some areas. There's still a lot of people who are interested in the traditional ways. And I also don't want to idealize the uh, experience of living together with other people because, and we can go into this another time, I had a very difficult experience this year in living in a collective house and it is nothing to be glorified. I, I will tell you that for sure. We all have had our roommate problems in the past and it's always something that is, uh, <laughs> it's always a good time and very much a learning experience. I also thought it was very fascinating how other cultures had these rituals that were that bypassed jealousy. And that, that point in the interview where Chris was saying that jealousy is an expression of fear that comes from this scarcity that, that's created in society, these other cultures had ways of neutralizing that jealousy that comes from the fear of scarcity. And that's something that definitely does not exist in our society. Everything creates an idea of scarcity from the money supply to you know the race to get an apartment to dating, the fight to get like the guy or the girl. It's so competitive. And it would be very nice to live in a society that instead embodied some of the principles of the post-growth movement where everybody starts looking at what they can give to the world, be uh, needed instead of needy, as we've covered in some of our recent shows. So, Justin, you know, couples getting married nowadays, do you think that they should go through some kind of counseling session where they learn about these ideas that Chris Ryan talks about? Or maybe they should be required to read this book. Do you think that would be beneficial to helping the divorce rate to go down a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I think there's so many social pressures that exist that force people into relationships or marriages where they really should have thought about it a lot more. And so having mature and realistic conversations about human sexuality can really help to prevent a lot of pain and frustration because of these problems that we talked about today. Because we go through all of these contortions to avoid life, another phrase that was in today's interview, and our idea of, of marriage only originated with the troubadours. And I wanted to play a few clips from Joseph Campbell here. Let's talk about love, but where should we begin? I think my answer would have been the troubadours in the 12th century. Let's begin there. Because they're the first ones in the West that really considered love in the sense that we think of it now as a person-to-person relationship. You're talking about romantic love? Yes. It, it's the seizure that comes in uh, recognizing as, a, as where your soul's counterpart in the other person. And that's what the um, troubadours stood for. And that has become the ideal in our lives today. What had it been before that? Well, the idea of love as Eros, the god who excites you to sexual desire, this is not the, the person-to-person thing of the falling in love in the way the troubadours understood it. I have a definition for Eros, uh, the erotic biological urge as the zeal of the organs for each other. Hmm. And uh, the personal factor doesn't matter. 
Where did Eros come from? Well, Eros is Cupid. And in India, the god of love is Kama. And he's no Cupid. He's a big, vigorous youth with a uh, bow and a quiver of arrows. And the names of the arrows are such things as death-bringing uh, agony and open up. And uh, really, he just drives this thing into you so that it's a, it's a total physiological, psychological explosion that takes place. The usual marriage in traditional cultures is uh, arranged for by the families. It's not um, a person-to-person -person decision at all. And this is true to this day in uh, many parts of the world. This is not to say that in uh, arranged marriages of this kind there is no love. There is a lot of love. There's family love and uh, a rich love life on that um, level. So in the Middle Ages, of course, that was the kind of marriage that was sanctified by the church. And so the idea of, uh, of a real person-to-person -person marriage was very dangerous. It dangerous was, because it was heresy. It was not only heresy, it was adultery. And that was punishable by death. As our whole world changes, we've mentioned communication technology changing, we've mentioned the different ways of human beings relating to each other changing. Can we really expect for our institutions to remain the same? Can we really expect for marriage to keep the form it has for hundreds of years? I think it's quite possible that we'll look back in a few decades and see that transformation occur. Yeah, we're going to live through it. All the people of our generation are. And our kids are going to have a totally different idea of what marriage is. So some other people who are living through this transition in what it means to be human and some of our great institutions becoming totally different are some of our fantastic listeners out there who have been so kind and so dedicated to the show to send us in their hard-earned dollars. We had Matt out in Ontario send us some money and Anton out in Belarus. So thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Also, other people that donated were Lucas in Paris and Robin in Invercargill, New Zealand. So thanks so much, guys. And for everybody who donated to receive stickers and T-shirts, we're going to be shipping those out. And thanks to all of you for donating. It is a tremendous gift that you're giving us the ability to do these shows and keep expanding our reach. So, Seth, we've got a video up on our website with Charles Eisenstein. Tell us about it. I would love to, Justin. Justin shot an interview with Charles when he was out in Vancouver and sent it to me via the magic of the internet. I took that raw footage and combined it with all sorts of YouTube videos and some B-roll that I had and made a fantastic little mashup video. It's about seven and a half minutes long. Kind of goes into the areas of what our society might look like without growth. Charles is a really staunch advocate of of what it means to be human in this changing society. And, you know, he's a fantastic speaker. And when you add images to what he has to say, it makes it even more powerful. If you have yet to see that video, uh, check it out online. It's on our Facebook. It's on our website. And we would be glad to hear some feedback about that as well. So check out the video, share it with all your friends, and spread the word about the Extra Environmentalist audio and video series. If you want to learn more about Extra Environmentalist offerings, come check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. We have a full archive 
of old shows. You can check us out on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio. You can stream all the stuff from the website. We're our, we have a huge following on Facebook. We're about to hit 800 likes on Facebook. Justin, did you ever think we were going to get there? I know I didn't. I never thought we'd get there. I really appreciate it. We are on Twitter. X Environmental is our handle. And if you want to follow us on our SoundCloud, we're out there too. And really feel free to leave us a voicemail message on, on our Skype or over our landline phone which is an online inbox where you can leave your rambles, your talks, your comments, anything you want. You want to sing a song, please just put it up there. We would love to have it. Justin, what's that number? If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. And we had a great voicemail from Danny in the Dish Pits. Hey, Justin. Hey, Seth. It's uh, Danny from the Dish Pit with another Dish Pit Diary. This week was great. We washed a lot of forks and a lot of plates and cups and pans. And uh, I was listening to your show about the zombies and the, and the undead coming back to life. And uh, fun working, you know, working as a zombie slave to the to the restaurant business. But that's okay. We... Because we had ourselves a bona fide zombie jubilee in celebration of the the Dia de las Muertes uh, that takes place two days after Halloween, All Hallows Eve. And it was great. All the the friends uh, painted up in uh, skull face, looking like they were dead, and playing trombones and tubas and tambourines. And and we we danced down the street to the river. And lit a giant Viking ship on fire, sent it off with all the memories of our friends that had passed, uh, deceased that that year, the year uh, between 2011 and 2012. Also, uh, the uh, the zombie episode made me think about, uh, well, what monster would I be? And I, I guess I would be a giant worm eating the um eating all the garbage that gets thrown away in the restaurant we got some uh compost bins we uh take and uh bring some soil life to our little backyard garden and uh get some good food out of that all right y'all keep up the great work and keep keep those podcasts coming to the dish pit yeah Thanks again for your support, Danny. We really appreciate you shouting out to us once again. We really like your voicemail messages. They are pretty fantastic. And definitely make sure you call in, especially if you are a female, because we did just have an entire show about sexuality with all guys. So we need those (laughs) feminine voices in here. Justin isn't trying to get your phone numbers. He really wants to have voicemails from from listeners, as do I. This is a very one-sided conversation, heavily weighted to the men's perspective. And we we would value having a female perspective on this show. And Seth, you definitely made some inflammatory comments. Oh, I know I did. I'm sorry, ladies out there. Leave a comment if you feel like we've flamed your whole sex and... But with this extremely gender-specific episode, please leave us a voicemail and vent all your frustration before you delete all the extra-environmentalist archives that you own. Thanks to everybody who has been shooting us messages, um, email messages, and even though we don't have a chance to get into all of them on the show, they are just absolutely 
fascinating to hear from so many people from all around the world. And we do read each and every one of those emails, even if we don't respond right away. So thank you so much for sending them in. And we've also been doing quite a few uh, interviews on other shows recently such as on episode number 334 of the Sea Realm podcast. And definitely do that. We had a great time talking with KMO. And you can also hear us on the Eco-Hyphen podcast, which we'll throw a link to on our site. When that episode is up, we are looking forward to sharing it. Another thing to check out is our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash extraenvironmentalist. SoundCloud just rolled out an amazing new interface, and I definitely recommend that you check it out. And you can follow us on there and share the audio with your friends. So it's really great. And I also wanted to thank Kevin, our editor, and Chris for doing so much great web stuff for us. also need a shout out to Louisa for throwing up those great articles on our blog. Really can't say enough about the blog. You guys should definitely check it out. It's always got interesting and insightful things to talk about. And of course, the blog is available on the Extra Environmentalist website, extraenvironmentalist.com, and click on the blog tab. So as we close out here, Seth, you are getting ready to head across the Atlantic over December. That's right, Justin. I am taking a much-needed vacation going to head across the pond. Starting December 12th, I will be in Eurotown. I'm going to be uh, traveling between Scotland and Krakow and Paris. And I think I'm going to end in Istanbul. So if you live in any of those towns or countries, and you want to hang out with the Extra Environmentalist, get up with me and have a drink or talk about what you're thinking about lately, let me know. And we can get up and we can have a drink or a meal. Justin, I know you're traveling as well. Yeah, that's right, Seth. I'm going to be heading to North Carolina and New York City in late December and early January. So give me a shout out if you're going to be in New York City at that time and we can meet up. And if we get enough people together, we could even arrange a larger meetup. So I will look forward to seeing everyone in North Carolina and New York. And so thanks again for listening to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist. We have many more great episodes on the way, so get ready for The Extra Environmentalist as we close out 2012 and head into 2013. It is going to be quite an adventure. So remember to love your grandmother and blow her mind whenever you have the chance. has to be really very, very serious about this matter. Because I'm using this word so loosely, so it's become so corrupt. Love of God, love of my wife, love of my property, love of my country. I love to read. I love to go to the cinema. I love to go to... And one of our difficulties is modern education is not making us serious. We are becoming specialists. 
first-class doctor, first-class surgeon, first-class physician, and so on, so on. But it's, the specialist becomes a menace that way. Education, as we were saying previously, is to encourage to see that the human mind is serious, serious to, to find out what it means to live, not just become a specialist. So if that's all understood, what is love? Is love pleasure? Is love the expression of desire? Is love sexual appetite fulfilled? Is love the, the pursuit of a desired end? Is love a thing that can be cultivated? Is love pleasure? It's a, I think this is very important, what the Western civilization has put this over the whole of the earth, through cinemas, through books, through pornography, through every kind of advertisement, stories. This sense of love is identification with sex. Can a mind that pursuing pleasure, ambitious mind, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a competitive mind, a mind that says, I must get something out of life, I must compete. Can such a mind love? It can love sexually. But is love of sex, is that the only thing? And why have we made sex such an enormous affair? We can talk endlessly about what love is, what love is not, theoretically. But if we use the word love as a mirror, to see what is happening inwardly. And I inevitably must ask the question whether it is pleasure in its multiple forms. Can a man who is top executive got to that position through drive, through aggression, through deception, through ruthlessness, can he know what love is? Then our, our whole social moral structure is immoral, and nobody wants to change that. On the contrary, they say, yes, let's carry on, put on a lot of coating on it, different colours, more pleasant, and let's carry on. I mean, if a man is really concerned to come upon this thing called love, he must negate this whole thing. You see, love is, after all, a sense of total absence of the me, mm -hmm. total absence of the me my ego, my ambitions, my greed, my am all that, which is me. Total negation of all that, negation, not brutal denial or surgical operation, but the understanding of all that. When the me is not, the other is. Hmm? Hmm. Obviously, it's so simple. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we recap 2012 and pull together an audio documentary of our degrowth conference interviews. I guess 2012 is the year, maybe we'll look back on it and we'll say, yeah, that's the year that the growth paradigm really ended. I mean, obviously there's still growth in, you know, China, Turkey. India, you know, the BRIC countries, there's still economic growth, but it slowed down this year. And in Europe, it stalled. And the United States, there was a little bit of growth, you know. And I think that, that people in the, um, in the system are starting to understand that the good old days 
are not coming back. That age of growth isn't coming back, and they haven't really processed this in any meaningful way because their economic models don't work, their financial policies don't work. I mean, everything is predicated on growth, and we don't really have the tools to manage an economy that isn't growing. So they're kind of in denial uh, and not wanting to really digest this, this change. Most students absolutely have no idea where our money comes from and what backs it up and how it works. You know, if you start with the uh, early goldsmiths and how they could loan gold and uh, eventually they could loan little paper certificates entitled people to gold and then they discovered they could actually loan more gold than they had um, by a large ratio. And, uh, and it's a very clear, simple, easy idea to understand that. And then you translate that into the modern banking system. But most people are really unaware that our money is loaned into existence at debt. And that has profound implications for our economy as a whole. The key is to recognize that in developed and developing countries, there will be simultaneously sectors that need to degrow while others need to grow. Uh, and, and that obviously is a different set of kind of equation depending on whether we're talking about developing countries or developed. I would say in the U.S., for example, we want to dramatically grow our agrarian localized food base. Bye, extra environmentalists. Thanks for coming by to the family dinner. Boys, let's sit down for dinner. It's time for our family Christmas dinner. Grandma, this looks fantastic. What did you make? Well, since my favorite type of tea is Earl Grey tea, I made a dinner based on a fa- my favorite book based on Earl Grey tea. Fifty Shades of Grey! That was a great book! You know, Grandma, that book was not about tea. Well, then why was there so much reference to teabagging in it? Well, okay, let's sit down and see what you made us. So we're gonna start out this dinner by handcuffing your grandfather to the chair so I can force feed him all this food, so help me out, children! Grandma, this seems a little bit unorthodox. You're gonna have to take that gag out before he can put food in his mouth. I'm just doing it by the book, son! Can you explain to me why we're all blindfolded? Well, that makes what you're about to eat more of a surprise! First, you need to grab that fork and stick it into the turkey! Now bring it up to your lips! and caress it with your tongue like it's something you really want to put in your mouth. Grandma, this seems kind of strange. I don't really know- Shut up, Sonny! We're doing this! Now put it in your mouth and chew it like you need it. Roll it around your tongue and chew it. CHEW IT! CHEW IT! Slowly, slowly- I SAID SLOWLY! Make it slow! It has to last. Grandma, this is some tender turkey. How did you get so much juice inside of the bird? I used inspiration from the book to put all the great herbs and spices inside with my fist. Like this, sonny! Oh, 
Grandma, that visualization of your fist going through your open hand is really making me uncomfortable. Grandma, why are you rubbing butter all over Grandpa's body? Because he's gotta be nice and juicy for the next course. What are you, what are you doing, Grandma? Well, he's not saying anything to stop me. Grandma, that's because you have that gag ball in his <laughs> mouth. Do it faster. Oh, I do think I'm dumping it all over him. Grandma, I think it's time for dessert now. You ate all that food already? No wonder they call you the Minute Man. It's a colonial reference. All right, Lucas, now help me move your grandfather on the table. We're going to do body shots off of him for dessert. Grandma, I'm going to be careful what books I leave around your house. No, Lucas, I really enjoyed reading that Fifty Shades of Grey. Now quick, pour some tequila in your granddaddy's belly button. If you keep speaking up here, Lucas, I'm going to have to discipline you. Now hand me that whip because I'm going to whip up some dessert. Thanks for tuning in to the Christmas with Grandma episode of Fifty Shades of Quantitative Easing. It's the story of how your money system disciplines you. See you next week when I rig up that money printer and do some nasty things with it. Now, Lucas, come over here and help your grandmother Google these words in this Fifty Shades book. 